John 15, verses 5 to 17. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Merry Christmas. Um, As... Maria so eloquently reminded us uh, this morning for Advent Week 4. Our theme this morning is love. Um, We've kind of tracked through um, these different themes throughout um, the season of Advent, beginning with hope, and then peace, last week joy, um, and then this week we're going to look at love. Um, And I want to start by just asking you the question, what do you think of when you hear that word? When you think of the word love, um, what comes to mind? Just take a second. What's coming to mind right now? Wives are elbowing husbands. Um, There's all kinds of different things that we can think about with love, right? Because love is um, multidimensional in a lot of ways. Uh, If you just even think about uh, relationships, uh, the love that I have for my wife, the love that I have for my children, and the love that I have for my friends um, are all very different kinds of love, aren't they? Um, I don't love my kids in the, in the same way that I love my wife. It's a different kind of love. It might be the same kind of intensity of love, but it's a different kind. And, and certainly my friends are very thankful that I don't love them the same way that I love uh, my wife. <laughs> Get off me. Uh, right? So, <laughs> right? So we have, we, have, we have loves, and they're very real loves, but, but there's different kinds of even loves. Um, and so... We, in our English language, are pretty limited with, with our descriptions of these things. Uh, in the Bible, there's different kinds of loves. There's eros, there's, uh, which is a more romantic or, or sexual love. There's phileo, which is a more friendship or brotherly love. Um, there's agape, which is a, a, an unconditional kind of love. Um, is there anything I can do for that? No? Um, but we say we love all sorts of stuff, right? We love Christmas. Some people more than others. 
<laughs> Andrew. <laughs> right? Some people love Christmas. Um, and uh, some people love football. Or we love coffee. Um, or we love sleep. Um, a lot of young parents in the, in the room are like, sleep, hmm, I vaguely remember. <laughs> Hence the love for coffee. But um, it gets better, trust me. And so love is complex. Um, and it's, it's complicated. And, and uh, so when we think about love and we think about God's love, um, we are limited in, in our understanding of that, right? Because we can really only understand love. Uh, we can only experience love humanly. We're kind of limited in, in, in how we understand or how we experience love because of our humanity. We experience these things as, as beautiful as they are, um, as wonderful as they are. We still experience them in a broken and fractured and limited way. Um, and so this limits our understanding. It limits our experience of, of love in a way in which God is not limited. So our understanding of love, our experience of love is a different, it, it's limited. It's, it's a shadow of um, what God actually experiences and, it, and, and at his very essence is, um, which is love. And that really is kind of the greatest challenge, isn't it? That really is what the Christian life is about. It's, it's about abiding in God's love. It's about uh, experiencing in deeper and more intimate and more real ways uh, our relationship with the love of God. Um, it's about being able to receive God's love into our hearts and our lives, um, which we stymie, which we limit, which we run away from um, all the time. It's about... Uh, us being able to enter into those things and understanding them deeper so that we might then live out the way of Jesus, which is the way of love. And so this is what we want to look at today. I want to look at this idea of love. We, our main text is John 15. We'll look at a couple others uh, along the way. Um, and we, I want us to look at really the picture that the Bible presents of God's love, which is one in which his love, even in eternity past, even before creation, before you and I or any humans or anything else was in existence, when God just was, that's hard enough for us to wrap our head around, right? An eternal, never created, always existing God. Even in, in before creation, God's love was other-oriented. His love was other-oriented. Now, that can't be said for a lot of other religions or gods. Um, but because the God of the Bible is one, but he is also a Trinitarian God. There's this plurality in unity. We talk about God being three persons in one. Um, he is one God made up of three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so because uh, Andrew talked a little bit about that last week and unpacked a little bit of the Trinity, and anytime we start to talk about the Trinity, you're always on the, on the brink of heresy, right? Um, ask Justin. Justin will tell you a funny story about it. Right? Because it's just, we're all, like any way you describe it, it just seems so limited. It's once you start to describe this aspect of it, you're like, but there's this other counterbalance aspect of it, of it over here as well. And so we talk about these things with great trepidation and great uh, limited understanding. But that limited understanding um, should catapult us in our imagination into worship because God is so much bigger. His ways are so much higher than ours. 
And so here we have this Trinitarian God existing before you and I, this plurality and unity. And this plurality and unity does not destroy God's entirely appropriate self-focus. Right? God, God's love is focused on himself. Now, for anybody else, if our love is focused on us, we're narcissistic, we're, you know, deplorable kind of people probably who are just caught up in ourselves. But because God exists as Trinitarian God, three in one, he's able, his, his other-centered love is still self-centered. Does that make sense? Because God exists in three in one, he's able to love within the Trinity, within this, this, this Trinitarian God. Because he is God, he's therefore rightly jealous, right? Uh, the Bible tells us that he doesn't concede. He doesn't concede something other than being at the center of all things. He is to be rightly worshiped and adored. For God to place his uh, worship on anything else would be to debase his very godhood. He is the God who entirely rightly um, does not give his glory to another. I think we have the slide there for Isaiah 42.8. This is what God says himself. I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so God in his love, even before you and I are created, is entirely centered on himself, and yet at the same time is entirely others-oriented. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Spirit bound up in this Trinitarian love together. Now, if this were all that the Bible disclosed about God, um, we could read of a, a God who had impeccable holiness, whose justice was of the highest degree. But what of love? The love of God is sovereign, it's providential, to be sure. But this is one way that the Bible speaks of God's love. But there's more to that. In eternity past, the Father loved the Son, the Son loved the Father. There has always been an other orientation to the love of God. It's part of the reason why he creates us, to catch us up within this, for the love of God to be able to be um, expanded out even, even further. And so all the manifestations of love, all the manifestations of the love of God emerge out of this deeper, more fundamental reality. The love that God has for us, for his creation, emerges out of this fundamental reality that love is bound up in the very nature of God. So much so that the scripture reveals God as love itself. God doesn't just love. God is love by his very nature. So you and I, when we experience love between us, it's always fractured, isn't it? It's always broken. It's never pure. My love is never pure. There's always brokenness and selfishness and ulterior motives, even if they're unknown to myself, but not so with God. And so let's look deeper into this love of God to better understand it. And my hope is this morning that this uh, understanding of God's love uh, will fill uh, our Christmas, our new year, um, our life and maturity in Christ with much wonder uh, and worship as we move um, um, throughout this morning. 
Um, Firstly, as we look at God's love, I think we want to recognize a distinction um, between the love of the Father for the Son and a distinction between the love of the Son for the Father. Um, Now, that's really important, and we're going to see why. And again, we have to hold this kind of Trinitarian idea of who God is, that God is Father, that God is Son, and there's a relationship that happens within the Godhead, our one God. Um, And that's going to help us as we move forward and be really critical, and, and we'll see why as we move on. We see the, the father in his relationship to the son. The father commands, he sends, he tells, he commissions, he demonstrates his love for the son by, the Bible says, showing him everything, by revealing everything to the son, such that the son does whatever the father does. Jesus will say things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. They're inextricably linked to one another, but, but there's a difference. The son obeys. The son says only what the father gives him to say, does only what the father gives him to do, comes into the world as the sent one, not the sending one. And he demonstrates his love for the father precisely by such obedience to the father. Nowhere in the scripture is there any kind of hint that the son commissions the father Not once do we see the father submitting to the son or is dependent on him for his own words and deeds. Now again, anytime we're talking about the Trinity, you can very easily start to wander into heresy. So um, historically, Christians, uh, Orthodox Christians have avoided this trap of Arianism. Well, I don't have time to get into all this this morning. By really insisting that the son is equal to the father in substance or essence. They are equal in substance and essence, but there is a, a functional or an economic subordination of the Son to the Father. And this is really important to us as we understand the love of God because it's going to help us understand how we enter into the love of God as well. This is what's interesting to us this morning is the way that the text in the, in the scripture distinguishes how the love of the Father for the Son is manifested. And how the the love of the son for the father is manifested. And those are manifested in different ways. And then how such love really functions to to help us draw lines outward um, as we follow Jesus. Into elements of our conduct, into our elements of experience of living the Christian life. And so these functions in various ways. um, But we're really only going to have time this morning to reflect on one of them. And so we find ourselves in John 15, where Jesus is telling his disciples in verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. So there's a distinction there. The Father is loving the Son a certain way, and now the Son is loving us in light of that. And so we move from this kind of intra-Trinitarian love that is existing before creation, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all loving each other. And it moves out now. It moves the love of the Father to the Son from the Son, the Son's love to his people in redemption and the story of of the redemptive arc of history. Jesus really becomes the mediator of the Father's love to us. How does the Father love us? How are you loved by God this morning? The answer is you are loved by the Father through the Son. You are loved by God through the Son. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
Jesus is the mediator of the Father's love to us. He's receiving love, and so he is loved. And then he adds this commandment. Uh, He says, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see what's, what's happening here. Jesus shows us how to love God. He shows us how to love God by the example that he provides to us. The Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now you love me the way that I love the Father. How do you love God? You love God by loving Jesus. And you love Jesus the way that Jesus loves the Father. Jesus isn't just the means by how we love God. He's also the way, the example by which we love God. And so I want us to reflect on this kind of parallel track that's happening here. The perfection of Jesus and his obedience to the Godhead, to, to the Father. Which, um, if, I think there's a slide here. If you go back to the previous chapter, the previous chapter in John 14 ends with this verse. He says, um, so his perfect love for the Father, he says, but I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So that the world may know that I love the Father. The perfection of Jesus' obedience to the Father is the mark of the Son's love for the Father, for his Father. Why does Jesus obey the Father, even unto death? Because of his love for him. This is precisely what this means then for the eternal Son to remain in the love that the Father has for him. So there's two kind of things that are happening here. There's a relational dynamic and there's a constitutional <laughs> dynamic. We'll, we'll talk about it this way, right? There's, there's a relational part. The father and the son, are, they relate to each other in love. But there's also a constitutional matter. It's the way that God Almighty is constituted. It's his very essence. It's, it's who he is. It is his nature. It is his character. It's his constitution that the father and the son remain in love together. And so this pattern of love, both relational and constitution, constitutional, is the very being of God becomes, according to Jesus, the model and incentive of our relationship to Jesus. We look at Jesus, how does he relationally and constitutionally relate to the Father together? And this will be the model for us. It says if we love him, we will obey him. Um, in uh, the same previous chapter, John 14, 15. This is, this is Jesus. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so you see how our relationship to Jesus mirrors the relationship of Jesus to the Heavenly Father. And this is a major theme that Jesus will then unpack in John 17. I'd encourage you to go back even today if you want some, um, some reading to, to reflect more on what we're talking about this morning. Just read John 14, 15, 16, 17. Read, read those four chapters. This incredible um, description of, of God's love for the Son, his, the Son's love for the Father, and then us being caught up in that, us being invited into that. And then, so this, this passage that we see here in 14 really goes back to what John has, has already unpacked in, in John chapter 5. So let's have those verses um, as well. This is John 5. This is, um, this is what Jesus says uh, to them and to us this morning. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, The son can do nothing of his own accord, 
but only what he sees the Father doing. Constitutionally, they are bound together. For whatever the Father does, that then the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Now that's really important, remember that. The Father loves the Son, and so he reveals all, he shows him all. There's nothing hidden. It's a completely open relationship. Everything there is open. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you might marvel. I hope we marvel this morning. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. The Father wants the Son to be honored, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't honor God and not honor and dishonor Jesus. Why? Because they are constitutionally bound together, but their love relationally is bound together. There's honor, there's love. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, who? The Father, has eternal life. He who does not comes into, into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This is incredible, isn't it? And then, so then we come back to uh, chapter 15. And this is what Jesus says to us in verses 15, uh, 15, 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants. No longer do I call you slaves. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. Do you see the parallels that's happening there? In John 5, the Father loves me. He's revealed all to me. And so in obedience, I respond. He sends, I go. And then what does he say about, how does this love then come down to us? You're, you're no longer slaves. No longer do I call you slaves. What does he say? You are my friends. Now, he says, you are my friends if I command, if you do uh, what I command you. Now, I want us to notice the distinction that Jesus makes. He makes this distinction between slaves and servants and friends. But the distinction there in verse 14 might initially kind of surprise us, right? Because the way we think about these things is broken and fractured. Jesus says, we are his friends if we do what he commands. Now that sounds like the definition of a slave, does it not? That sounds like the servant. It sounds like Jesus is paying a little bit of lip service here. Oh yeah, yeah, you're my friends if you do what I tell you. You're like, that, doesn't, that still sounds that I'm a slave if I have to do everything you tell me to do. It sounds like you're just trying to kind of, you know, put a nice uh, veneer on this a little bit. And certainly this kind of friendship isn't reciprocal, is it? I can't turn around to Jesus and, thank, and say, you know what, Jesus, thanks. You're my friend too if you do everything I tell you to do. And so what's going on? How is it that we're no longer slaves? How is it that we're no, we're no longer, how is it that we're really Jesus' friend if there's still this, but we have to do what you tell us to do? Is there really a difference that Jesus is drawing between being a slave and a friend? Because our culture teaches us that the slave obeys no matter what. 
or the servant. That's what you get paid to do. There's a transaction here. Either you're a servant and this is your job, you're obeying because you're getting paid to, there's some reward for that, or you're just a slave. And I have, there's a power dynamic here. I have all the power, you have none, so you do what I tell you to do. And that sounds more like oppression than it does friendship or freedom. But this isn't the distinction that Jesus has in mind. This isn't exactly what Jesus is talking about here. He says that we are his friends. Why? Because he has made known to us all that he has learned from the Father. Um, Don Carson gives, a, I think, a helpful illustration. Um, imagine a general in the army. And the general comes to, uh, you know, a private. And he says, listen, I want you to go and fetch, um, you know, my Hummer, whatever vehicle they drive around in. I don't know. I'm not an army guy, right? But um, go fetch the Jeep. And, um, uh, you know, I need you to take me to headquarters. And imagine the private said, uh, okay, but, uh, you know, I want you to tell me why, why I got to get it. How long are you going to be there? Do I get to use the Jeep while I'm waiting for you? What, do, what exactly are you doing at headquarters? And, and if you answer those questions, then I'll go and get the Jeep. Now, how do you think that's going to go for, for that private? I imagine that guy's going to be cleaning toilets with a toothbrush for a long time. Right? You're the private. You just do what you're told. When a general asks you to jump, the right, the right question is, how high do you want me to jump? And, and, and so we think maybe, is this what Jesus is talking about? Jesus gives us commands and we just obey? But think of it this way. Suppose this general had been a friend of this private's family. He knew him personally. He'd watched the young man kind of grow up and enter into the army. He knows him by name. And so he says, you know, Bob, I don't know. It's <laughs> a good generic name. Sorry if, your name, if you're Bob here today, sorry. <laughs> Bob, hey, I want you to fetch the Hummer, please. I need you to drive me to headquarters. I'm gonna be there about two, two hours. Uh, you can use the vehicle during that time, provided you're back to pick me up at, you know, 1,600 hours. Now, in this case, of course, the private's still required no less to obey the order, isn't he? It's still the same order. But there's a difference this time. The different, there's a difference of relationship. There's, there's a difference that full information has been conveyed already. It's an information difference. It's a difference of, of revelation. Not a difference of obedience. The obedience still is required. But because there's revelation, because there's information, because there's relationship there, doesn't that change those two scenarios? God's people, if you're a follower of Jesus today, we are no longer slaves. At this point in redemptive history, the fullness of God's revelation has come to us in the Son, who was perfectly obedient and thereby perfectly disclosed God to us. And so Jesus says, you're no longer slaves. You're friends. You've been let in. You've seen the Father. You know what I know. The same love that I am receiving, you're now able to receive. Um, let's look at Galatians 4. 
This is the first seven verses. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Okay, now this is Paul unpacking some of this. Though he's the owner of everything, but he is under the guardians and managers until the day set by the father. So he's imagining uh, a minor, an heir, who isn't quite mature enough yet uh, to be able to inherit everything that the, the father has given him, right? And so he's under guardians and managers until the day set by the father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. So imagine an heir who isn't able to act like the full heir yet. They're underneath uh, rules, they're underneath regulations, guardians, they're underneath these things, they're underneath the law. He says, in, in, in the same way, it was a similar way with us. When we were children, when we were not fully understanding, when, when we didn't quite understand what God was doing yet, we were still enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And this is, this is why we sing Christmas songs right here. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This is a Christmas story. This is a story of God's love at just the right time when the fullness of time had come. It wasn't random. It was exactly when God wanted. It was at the appointed time, the time appointed before the foundation of the world. This wasn't plan B. The plan from the very beginning of time. And when the fullness of that time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem you and I who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are no longer slaves. We are sons and daughters of the king. That in the fullness of time, God sent a son into the world. The son obeyed being sent that the Father, in love for the Son, determined that all should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. And that the Father and Son, in perfect harmony of plan and of vision, at the time that God ordained, played out their roles. Played out their roles. The Father sending, commissioning, showing, and the Son coming, revealing, and disclosing what had been shown to Him. And in obedience, not just the incarnation, not just coming as, a, as a, a frail, weak human, but in obedience all the way to the cross. And we now as heirs of the new covenant that Jesus establishes are unfathomably privileged to be led in on this stupendous eternal plan. We, do you understand the difference now? of why we obey out of our love for God. Not as slaves, not as someone who's outside with just a general barking disorders. We don't know what's going on back in the war room. We don't understand the, the strategy. We don't understand who the enemy is. We just kind of do, we, don't do what we're told. No, we have been brought in. All, the, all that God has revealed to the Son, the Son has revealed to us. We get to enter into this triune love that God um, extends outward to his people, the people who Jesus said he chose before the beginning of time. 
It's amazing. Again, the previous chapter in John 14. This is John 14, uh, 15 to 18. Now, we read this first bit, but I want us to keep reading. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is great, right? Okay, all right, Jesus, we got it. You're gonna send us love. We got it, we, we do all that. We'll keep your commandments. Uh, the difference, though, is, is I'm not Jesus. I'm not God. And so I don't follow commandments the same way that Jesus follows the commandments of God, right? Jesus does that perfectly. We do that less than perfectly, far less, right? That's the definition of sin. We are falling short of the standard that Jesus sets for us. And so what does he do? If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God enters into our humanity, not just to be an example, not just to show us what receiving and giving love to and from the Father is like, but to actually enable us to do it by his spirit. The spirit of Christ is given to us. And so we still struggle. We still wrestle. We still fight the fight, as as Paul says. But we don't do it on our own. The women will gather to talk about how exactly the spirit helps us stand. We are friends of God by virtue of this Trinitarian, inter-Trinitarian that God uh, has for himself that is so worked out in the fullness of time that the very plan of redemption conceived in the mind of God in eternity past has exploded into our space-time history at exactly the right moment. And we have been incalculably privileged not only to be saved by God's love, but to be shown it, to be informed about it, to be let in on the mind of God. God is love, and we are the friends of God. Amen. Oh, come, let us adore Him, let us abide. Let us remain in his love. This is what's so incredible about the incarnation. This is what's so incredible about Christmas. I mean, God could have, could have done it another way. God could have revealed himself without ever touching earth, without ever getting his hands dirty, without ever having to live in the muck and mire that you and I lived. And yet, that's not how he does it. He incarnates. He takes on flesh. He's born into poverty. Not into, not, not into a, royal, a royal line, yes, but not in, in the way that he's now privileged in, a, in power. Born in some backwater. 
in Galilee, works with his hands as a carpenter, spends most of his ministry homeless and on the road, is mocked by the religious elite, betrayed by his friends, given his very life. Why? Because he loves us. It's impossible to talk about the love of God and not look at the ultimate passage of that that we also know. We know it so well because of of it, right? John 3, for God so loved the world, he so loved us that he gave his only son. This is a Christmas story. We are, as a people in darkness, there's a people enslaved that God in his love is gonna send a light, is gonna send a redeemer, is gonna send his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life, eternal life in the love of God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Might be saved through him. Oh, come, let us adore him. We're gonna come to the table. And sometimes when we come to the table, it can be somber. We can, we can come to the table kind of reflecting on um, ourselves, um, our need, our own sin, our own brokenness, and that being um, our sins being absolved because of the body and blood of Christ. And that is right to do. Um, Paul tells us that we should do that. But it isn't the only way that we come to the table. The table can be a feast, right? One of, my, one of my favorite things about this time of the year is the feasting. It's the food. I, I would spend five times the amount on Christmas food than I would a present, on presents. I love it. Like M&S at Christmas time? Oh, my goodness. That's heaven to me, right? Feasting. And so my brother and I do all the cooking at Christmas, uh, and we just spend the morning in the, in, in the kitchen, and it, you know, you, you it's this feast, it's this celebration, and you look forward to it, right? The last few days, I opened my, my refrigerator, and there's this rib roast and this turkey crown, all just, and I'm, I'm like, oh, it's coming. <laughs> you look forward to it, right? And this is what we do with a feast. It's a celebration. And so the table can also be a celebration of the love of God to us, his body and his blood are the ultimate gift of love that he gives, we come reminded that God so loved us that he gave. He so loved us that he gave. This is the present that God gives us. His love embodied in his son. Absolving his own wrath. And so uh, that's our response this morning. In the Christmas narrative, you see lots of different ways that people respond. Shepherds respond immediately to this amazing kind of, immediate kind of glory of angels showing up. The Magi, a little bit longer, studying, looking, paying attention, traveling a great distance, coming bearing gifts of worship. Herod. He sees Jesus as a threat to his own throne, rejecting and trying to 
destroy him. There's a lot of times when my heart can be a lot more like Herod, seeing Jesus as a threat to my, my kingdom and my own throne. And I want to distance myself from the love of God. I want to love my own self. I want to, I want to try to pleasure the, my own heart in ways that I see fit. And they always lead me to regret. They always leave me frustrated. They always leave me wanting. Until I return um, to the love of God. Until I return to the table. Until I remember that God is for me. He's not the barking general just barking orders, making me fall in line. He's a God who loves me so much that he sent his own son to bring me into relationship with him. Let's come and adore him this morning. Let me pray for us. (laughs) Father, it has been good and right um, for us to just meditate this morning on your incalculable love for us. Your grace, your mercy. That was the plan all along. That you would demonstrate your love to us the best way you knew how, the best way that there is, by sending us love itself, by love embodied in Christ, taking on flesh, showing us the way empowering us to live along the way as we follow Christ. Father, I pray that you would, uh, that you would do that even now, that you, the spirit of Jesus would be here this morning. But Father, the, the words that I have are just not enough. The explanations that I have are just not um, adequate. And so we pray that you would meet us here. That your spirit would do in our hearts. That you would reveal to us your love. That you would overwhelm us with that. In ways that only you can do. Father, I pray um, as, we, um, as we prepare for, for tomorrow, for just this Christmas season, that, uh, that your love would be new and fresh and real. May we never lose uh, the wonder and awe of the message of your love for us. Father, we thank you for these seasons. We thank you for Advent and Christmas um, that make us stop and pause and reflect, that bring us to your rest. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus. Would you fill our hearts uh, with gratitude and with awe this morning as we come and receive uh, these elements, these symbols, uh, as you meet us at the table. Work in our heart's spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen.